What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is a special Q&A question and answer episode. To celebrate the milestone of reaching 100 narrative episodes, I invited listeners to send in their questions about ancient Egypt. The results are great, a wide range of topics and time periods for me to research outside the main story. I won't keep you waiting, let's dive in. Listener Jennifer asks, Were the women in the king's harem all there voluntarily? Were some prisoners of war or gifts from other leaders? And what can we say about the women who lived there and how they felt about their role? That's a great series of questions. It doesn't have a very clear answer. As for the voluntary aspect, no, not all of them were there voluntarily. Some women, such as Gilu Kappa of Mitanni, came as diplomatic brides, gifts from their fathers to the pharaoh. We also know that the pharaohs, like Amunhotep II, took large numbers of prisoners in war, and evidence from the non-royal sphere does occasionally reference female servants being sold or traded. So, long story short, yes, some of them were there involuntarily, and that's just a sad fact. As for the Egyptian women in the harem, well, that's tricky. On the one hand, being a minor bride to a pharaoh would have probably been a great honour and advantageous for her family. On the other hand, we have no idea how the women felt about this. So it's a bit of a difficult question, because we just don't have the information from their particular point of view. Even if they were there involuntarily, this didn't necessarily mean that their life was particularly bad. Some women from the harem, like Queen Mut Emwia, started as minor concubines or wives, but eventually rose to great power. So even if they didn't arrive at the harem by choice, this didn't mean that their lives were going to be particularly miserable. They might even have been quite comfortable or pleasant, at least by their standards. Jennifer also asks, were lice, or internal parasites and worms, things like that, a huge problem in ancient Egypt? This one's quite cool. Yes, parasites were an issue. A couple of major studies of Egyptian mummies have revealed things like blood fluke worms, leash mania from sand flies, enterobiasis or pinworm, and skin lesions. These parasites and diseases come mainly from the late New Kingdom and Greco-Roman periods, but that may just be an accident of preservation, or the particular sample size from different studies. Long story short, the mummy corpus is too vast to do a comprehensive analysis on this question, but it seems like parasites were relatively common in ancient Egypt. Were they a huge problem, though? The medical papyri maybe touch on this issue. Among other things, we find references to worms, which are probably tapeworms. The Ebers papyrus, for instance, has a remedy saying, quote, 
If the subject doesn't pass this treatment as worms, you will prepare laxatives for him so that he will feel well immediately. End quote. Diagnoses like these and others also mention painful swellings and skin conditions, some of which could be the influence of parasites. But overall, it was probably a common but not necessarily devastating issue. It's hard to say on the current scholarly evidence, but I can definitely say, yes, parasites were a problem for the ancient Egyptians. Thank you, Jennifer, for your questions. Listener Max asks, What was the attitude of Egyptians towards being part of the Roman Empire? Was this attitude different depending on their social class? And did the local ruling class have any strong loyalty to Roman government? That is a big question, and I'm going to cover that towards the end of the podcast, obviously, and it will probably take me quite a long time to explain it, quite a large episode. The short answer to that question is, it depends. The ruling class of Egypt, particularly down in Thebes, was notable for launching at least one major rebellion soon after the Roman occupation began. Just a few years after Augustus came to Egypt, the nobility of Thebes rebelled against the foreign incursion and tried to break away into their own kingdom. This rebellion was crushed by the Roman prefect Cornelius Gallus, who proclaimed his victory in a stela, a stela that was written in Latin, Greek, and in hieroglyphs, kind of like the Rosetta Stone. Interestingly, Gallus decided to dedicate his proclamation to Nihilus Adiutor, a.k.a. Nile River, the Helper. So it wasn't a total cultural occupation, snuffing out Egyptian lifestyles or anything like that. It was a bit more light-handed. The evidence from Cornelius Gallus and the Rebellion of Thebes suggests that the Roman occupation was military, political, and economic first and foremost. They weren't particularly concerned about Egyptian religion or cultural norms or anything like that. So when Cornelius Gallus was proclaiming his deeds in the country, he was quite happy to do it in a relatively Egyptian style, even if there were some tweaks for the Greek and Latin speakers among his audience. Beyond that first rebellion, the attitudes of the Egyptians themselves is quite hard to gauge. A lot of it depends on the written evidence, and as we know, most of the sources from that particular time period are Roman or Greek. Papyri from Egypt do give us a wonderful look at Egyptian life in Egypt, but they're not necessarily the sort of texts that tell you how people felt about the Roman occupation. Papyri from the Roman period in Egypt are often far more mundane. They're things like medical texts, or household accounts and estate reports, or even temple decrees and texts relating to the administration. There aren't necessarily that many texts written from the personal point of view, so we can't say definitively that the Egyptians were particularly rebellious on a personal level. Up the road in Judea, that was a whole different situation, because a concoction of religious and ethnic tensions made that province particularly unstable. Egypt seems to have been a lot more quiet by comparison. That being said, once the religion of Christianity took hold, there were a lot more religious tensions in different parts of the country, and that is something that we will explore in great detail towards the end of the podcast. Long story short, it's hard to say if the Egyptians were particularly bothered by the Romans, because by and large, their ordinary lifestyle probably didn't change that much. 
Generally speaking, there was probably some personal discontent or talk around the campfire about some officious asshole down in Thebes, or the local administrator who was being a real jerk, but realistically, that was probably the case in Pharaonic Egypt as well. Another question about the Roman Empire was, were there any specific industries or trades in Egypt which had great importance for the empire? Was it considered an essential part of the Roman economy, or just an outskirt province? That's a great question, the kind of thing that I love. I love this economic stuff. We know that farming was the major industry of value. Pretty soon after Augustus became pharaoh, his agents were confiscating the old royal land and repurposing it into the Ager Publicus, or public land of Rome. There were irrigation projects and settlements of soldiers in different areas, apparently to help build out the farming potential of the country. Eventually, Egypt became the main source of grain for the city of Rome, and later Constantinople. So, yes, agriculture was absolutely vital to the Roman Empire. Trade was also a major component of Egypt's contribution to the Roman economy. The ports on the Red Sea coast connected with Ethiopia, the Arabian Peninsula, and even India. The wealth that flowed through these Red Sea towns was probably a great source of exotic goods for Roman elites. Now these might not have been vital, but they were certainly useful in the personal day-to-day interactions of Roman wealthy society. Display and prestige were incredibly important, so showing off the goods that came from India or Arabia, and which travelled through Egypt, was probably a good way to start a conversation around the banquet table. So I'm going to say that that probably was quite helpful, although it's not necessarily a metric that economists recognise as much as they should. Apart from farming and trade, the major industries in Egypt were oil production, textile manufacture, and glassmaking. These were not necessarily vital to the empire overall, because oil production, textile manufacture, and glassmaking occurred in essentially every major society of the time. But the Egyptians did provide some noteworthy exports, and their work probably helped keep a few traders and manufacturers in business. As for the big picture, was Egypt essential to Rome? Well, yes and no. The vast farming and internal revenues were extraordinarily helpful to the Roman state, and one of the great catastrophes for the Byzantine or East Roman Empire was the loss of Egypt after the Arab invasion. I think what the question really means is, was Egypt special? Did the emperors treat it differently? Well, that's actually harder to confirm. There is some debate on the issue among scholars. One pair, Dominic Rathbone and Alan K. Bauman, suggests that the quote-unquote specialness of Egypt has actually been overinflated, and that the province was valuable, but not necessarily unusual in any particular way, at least not economically. We know that the Roman writers were incredibly interested by Egypt and its antiquity, but they were fascinated by Greece for the same reasons. So, was Egypt special? Well, I think it is, but I'd be hesitant to say that the average Roman would have said so. Emperors and administrators going through their accounts might have noticed that Egypt seemed to provide a great deal of wealth considering how far away it was, but whether they were going to give it special attention or put special energy into protecting it is another question. We certainly know that the Arab invasion took over the country surprisingly easily, so it's possible that by that point the Roman concern with the province had degraded somewhat, or maybe they were just overconfident. 
I really enjoyed researching those particular questions, and I look forward to talking about the Roman Empire when we get to that point in the podcast. Listener Michael asks, What elements of Egyptian art and architecture would go on to inspire the Egyptian revival style of the 19th and early 20th centuries? This was a really fun question to research. Columns and doorways seem to have been the most popular feature, because you can slot those into the facade of other buildings without seeming too out of place. Many public buildings, like post offices or town halls, in early 19th century England and America, feature Egyptian-style columns and doorways as part of a larger neoclassical style. It seems like the Egyptian material sort of got mixed in with Greek and Roman revivalism as sort of an overall fascination with the ancient world that was taking place at that time. There are some other really impressive works of this period that stand out. The famous Temple Works in the city of Leeds in England, which was opened in 1840, actually copies the Horus Temple at Edfu for its entire outside. The facade of this factory is essentially the same as the Edfu Temple, and its various outbuildings are derived from other Egyptian monuments. I've attached some pictures in the blog post for this episode. It's hard to describe, but it's a really impressive building. We also know that sphinxes were very popular as adornments on buildings and bridges. A particularly good one is the Egyptian Bridge in St. Petersburg. This was originally built in 1825, and then rebuilt in 1955. It has a pair of cast iron sphinxes at each end. These sphinxes are done more in the Ptolemaic style than the classic pharaonic, but it's still cool. Again, pictures on the blog post. That was a fun question. Thank you, Michael. Listener Tiffany asked, Since the god Anubis, along with Nephthys, was associated with childbirth, did that mean that both of these had priestesses in antiquity? That is a very tricky question to answer, because there's not a lot of evidence. Nephthys seems to have been served mainly by priests moonlighting from other cults. In a papyrus called the Wilbur Papyrus, we hear about a temple to Nephthys located within a larger temple of Seth. These temples were important enough to have their own land estates, but we don't hear of a large priesthood in her service. So it's hard to say whether a temple to Nephthys was more of a shrine, or a full-size construction in its own right. Anubis, meanwhile, seems to have had some priests representing him from other professions. A 5th dynasty priest named Mer-Ib worked in the mortuary cult of King Khufu, or Cheops, and secondary to this, he was an embalming priest of Anubis. So he may have been one of the men who wore the Anubis masks that have cropped up in the archaeological record. This is a mask which would be worn over the head for the chief embalmer to represent the god. They're pretty cool. Pictures on the website. To the best of my knowledge and research, Anubis and Nephthys did not have their own separate temples. Anubis had shrines in other sanctuaries, most notably the Temple of Hatshepsut at Deir al-Bahari, which featured side shrines to people like Hathor or Anubis. By and large, the god was not worshipped in his own temple network, but that's true of many Egyptian gods, in particular the ones with household functions. A god like Bes didn't have his own temples, but many people wore Bes amulets, or made offerings to Bes in the space of their own home. 
Maybe Anubis was too specific in his role to require a large priesthood. He was probably worshipped mainly in the context of death and funerary rituals, and it's not clear if he actually played a large part in the daily lives of most people. As for the childbirth context, well, it seems like during that process, Egyptians were more likely to turn to a goddess like Hathor or Isis, or even Sakmet, than they were to any other being. Magical bricks and texts which refer to giving birth suggests that the main focus was on mother goddesses, or protector deities like Sakmet, than on any other figure. So on the current evidence, it's hard to say that Nephthys or Anubis played any major role in childbirth. Maybe they did at a very distant level, but they're not directly invoked. I hope that helps, Tiffany. Thanks for your question. Listener Ray asked, I once heard that the Egyptian dress for women is made entirely of one piece of fabric, including underwear. Is that true? That's a good question, but the answer is not quite. Examples of ancient dresses, like the Tarkan dress from 3500 BCE, or the bead dresses from Dynasty 4, were single pieces of fabric, or a fine mesh of beads. But underwear doesn't seem to have been a thing as far as we can tell. The average Egyptian, like a working male, probably wore a loincloth for easy movement, or women may have worn dresses or tunics. But actual undergarments don't show up in the archaeological record, so they're either lost, or the ancients went commando on a day-to-day basis. Realistically, it does sound more comfortable that way. Ray also asked, what fabrics did they use other than linen, and what kind of colours would have been available other than white? Well, linen was the dominant fabric, but wool does appear occasionally, even if it's pretty unsuited to Egypt's climate. In Greco-Roman times, trade connections with India allowed small amounts of cotton to come in as well. We also have dresses made of bead netting, kind of like a fishnet pattern, and these may have been worn over linen, or simply over the skin. As for colours, apart from white, we have traces of colours like red, yellow, blue, or even purple, often made by combining red and blue threads together. We also have green. Now these all came in different shades or types. There was Nubian red, red ochre, green frit, and green malachite. Colour is hard to describe in words, because how do you describe a colour? But I have provided some more information with pictures on the blog post for this episode. Thanks Ray, that was a great question. And that's it for listener questions. Now, if you didn't hear your particular question here, I have sent out written responses via email. Some of the topics were already covered in the show, or they didn't have satisfactory answers. There are many things we'd like to know, but not every question has enough evidence to provide a meaningful response. So if you didn't hear your particular topic, check your emails for the answers I sent out. Thank you to everyone who contributed. It was lovely to go off script and research stuff that I don't normally get to. To everyone listening, I hope you've enjoyed this little sideshow. See you soon for the next episode. Mm